Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Before we begin, here's a brief public service podcasting announcement. We love making the bunker, but we can only keep doing that with your support. For £3 a month, you can back us on Patreon to get episodes early and ad-free, plus the warm, fuzzy feeling of helping to pay my rent. Now, for the second week running, I'm joined by Alex Andreu. Morning, Alex. How are you, mate? Morning, Jav. Dream team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't get enough of us, can you? <laughs> so the news over the weekend was Labour called for an investigation into Johnson's loan scandal. The links with the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, is the main issue here. Is that probe actually going to happen? Well, it should, but whether it does depends to an extent on this sort of briefing war going on between the Johnson mm. and Sunak factions, which is why we're seeing all of these stories, all of which are quite old stories, re-emerge again, because I think the two factions are feeding friendly people in their press with details of these stories. There's a new ethics advisor um, that Sunak only appointed a few days ago, a few weeks ago, I should say, as a Laurie Magnus. So it would be interesting. Very busy start to the job. <laughs> yeah, and whether behind the scenes he has an input, you know, he goes to Sunak and says, you need to let me investigate this. So this is all about the Sunday Times investigation saying that a, a multimillionaire Canadian businessman, Sam Blythe, who is also a distant cousin of Johnson, raised the idea that he might become a guarantor for a Johnson loan, and this was sort of facilitated by Sharp at a time when he was applying to be the chairman of the BBC. And he contacted Simon Case, who is the head of the civil service, the cabinet secretary at the time, to start a sort of due diligence process. And he wrote to them basically telling Mr. Johnson to stop seeking Sharp's advice on his personal finances, given that there was a forthcoming BBC appointment. More to the point, I think, as far as Labour is concerned, is the fact that Sharp was asked by the DCMS committee during the process of the approval of his appointment whether there were any possible conflicts of interest, any political links, anything that could basically embarrass the appointment process at a later date, and he failed to declare 
that anything was going on. And I think that makes it likely that if anyone takes the flack for this, it will be Sharp. What's Richard Sharp's uh, defence actually been here, Alex, as well? Because to me, it's, from reading it, it seems like he said, I was just a facilitator, which also seems exactly like what the, the accusation really is, is that he set this up. I mean, yes, that's basically the the thrust of it. The other part of it, if you want, is for everyone to say that he really is a very nice chap and very qualified for the job and would have got it anyway. That's the implication. But that's not the point, is it? When it comes to that sort of public appointment, you're not just looking for lack of impropriety. You're looking for a lack of any appearance of impropriety. And this is, I think something that has drained away from the standards discussion because it has taken such a battering over the last three years, that it's not just about doing things properly, it's about appearing to do things absolutely without the appearance of impropriety. I mean, it might be that their close links, the small and quite incestuous network that these people move within. Johnson's defense, by the way, was, yeah, we all had dinner together, so what? So it could be that this small, tightly knit network of donors and friends and rich people, it has become so incestuous that the people in charge cannot even see what the issue is here. You know, (laughs) they hang out with each other all the time. They give each other nudges in the right direction all the time. They introduce one person to another person in order to facilitate deals all the time. They lobby each other effectively all the time. They give each other jobs all the time. And they do this so much that they have ceased to even see why it is a problem. Well, that's the thing with Boris. He likes to play this Jack the Lad, nudge-nudge, wink-wink sort of character. Could this all just play into the cult of Boris if he doesn't get properly punished for it? You know, I think it might, uh, where his fans are concerned, but his fans are keen on him anyway. The problem for Johnson, in terms of a possible comeback, is the Parliamentary Conservative Party, Mm. where we know he has fewer fans than in the larger Tory community. And after the election, incidentally, possibly fewer still, because some of the seats that are likely to be lost are the seats that he newly won for people who would naturally be quite loyal to him, would see him as the reason they've got their job. And I think a lot of those seats are about to be lost. And this really doesn't help help him in that respect, because it just reminds his parliamentary colleagues that Johnson equals scandal. It never goes away. It never stops. And should he be put in a position again of even more scrutiny, stuff will come out about him every few days, because it has been doing. Does the right-wing press know how to deal with this? Because they hate the BBC, but then this scandal involves... Boris Johnson, who is someone they really like, do they know how to frame this story? I mean, interesting, the the BBC as an organisation is completely beyond criticism in this. And I think this is coming through. It has no involvement in the appointment of its board members and chairman. 
And highlighting this kind of political appointment, especially in combination with stories recently about non-executive people becoming involved with really quite executive mm. things, like you know giving lectures to newsroom staff about how to cover stories. I think it makes a nonsense of allegations that the BBC is somehow biased against the government. And so actually my feeling is this is quite helpful to the BBC. Yeah, so it's, it's a chance for them to step up to the plate in a way. Yeah. Mm. It's, Sunak has become the, the first person to be caught breaking the law, both as Chancellor and as Prime Minister. How <laughs> are things looking for him at the moment? And would he be happy to have the attention of him if it were taken by anyone but Boris Johnson? Yeah, I saw a fantastic meme at the weekend of him as, you know, the the dog cartoon in the burning room. <laughs> Um, say, say, this is, fine, this is just another fine. <laughs> I think, again, it all merges into a sort of whirl of inappropriate behavior that centers around one theme as far as the general public is concerned, who don't have an eye on the detail of all of this. But they do get one thing, that it's one rule for us and no mm. rules for them. All of it feeds into that. Everything we've discussed feeds into that. And the Zahawi affair that we're about to discuss will also feed into that. It also makes Sunak look like a prat, which politically <laughs> is much more toxic than any actual rule breach. You know? And he does that enough himself as well. So <laughs> Yeah, it's like those, those uh, sort of farce videos of criminals somehow foiling themselves by filming themselves. <laughs> I think there is a more important dimension to this. Last week and this week was meant to be a, a huge PR push for the government to highlight all the policy areas into which it is pumping money, okay? Instead, everyone is talking about he's not wearing a seatbelt, about Johnson and the loan, about Zahawi and his taxes. So the opportunity cost for the government is huge. You know, Sunak doesn't have that much money to play with at the moment. He needs to maximize the publicity for every bit of funding that goes out. He cannot afford for the little he can do to be swallowed up by other headlines, and that is what has happened. So I think instead of, instead of making a slight advance in the polling, they will find that they start to lose ground in the polling again, and that is huge a weight briefing of a relaunch of the relaunch of the relaunch yeah. of the yeah. relaunch, whatever relaunch number we're on now. <laughs> you mentioned Zahawi there. We might as well call this section Sleaze Watch at the moment. <laughs> what are the uh, the latest developments and why is he still in a job? Well, your guess is as good as mine. It is simply astonishing that someone who had to pay such a huge fine to HMRC for careless, and by the way, careless in tax speak means negligent. Let's be mm. clear about that. It doesn't mean a sort of oops. It means you failed to take proper care when doing this. It could have been that it was his accountants and, and the people who manage his money that failed to do this. We don't know that it was Zahawi himself. But what is astonishing is that the case was settled, it looks like now, while he was chancellor. Mm. You know, he settled this huge dispute with HMRC while he was the boss of HMRC. I mean, again, 
what I was talking about before, there may have been nothing inappropriate. But the appearance yeah. of it just stinks to high heaven. And let's say a little bit about Simon Case as well, you know, the top civil servant. How is he still in his job? You know, Partygate, Wallpapergate, everything from the early days of Johnson to the Zahawi tax affair and the Sharp loan, he's at the center of all of it. You know, it, it, Rachel Johnson actually uh, uh, said to Laura Kunzberg on Sunday, I suggest you ask Simon Case these questions, who seems to be the linchpin in these stories. That's how she described him. He's the person that is in place to oversee, to supervise, to scrutinize the government on propriety. Instead, he's acting as fixer. He's acting as a sort of lubricator of impropriety right at the center of government. I have no idea how this person is still in position. In terms of that, you know, asking him a question is that is that the issue there as well then that we there's sometimes it's unfair folks on the civil service and scrutiny where they can't answer back but then also at times where perhaps they need to answer questions should we have more access to make sure they do well i've seen i mean i've seen some of simon case's uh, appearances in front of parliamentary committees and certainly when he's asked person uh, questions he has shown himself to be very much cut from the same cloth as the rest of them. Um, he's evasive, superior, uh, defensive, completely unapologetic about the lack of transparency in what he seems to run. So, no, I don't think there can be any excuse for him. Like I said, it's about the appearance of propriety. You cannot have someone who appears to be a person that has presided over an unprecedented series of scandals. You know, how is he still in post? It doesn't matter whether he did anything right or, or wrong. Just give him a fucking knighthood and pack him off somewhere. <laughs> do you think Zahawi uh, will go anytime in the near future? Uh, if, you'd, if you're a betting man, do you think that could happen? I think he'll be gone by Wednesday evening. Okay. Oh, right after, <laughs> is that, spe right after is that specific enough now? for you? <laughs> <laughs> right after I recording this, now look, I say yeah. this. <laughs> I say this because the the boss of HMRC, Jim Harrow, is up before the Public Accounts Com Committee on Thursday talking about tax compliance, <laughs> um, and <laughs> and I think if Zahawi goes he'll have to go before that because otherwise that session will just generate a whole other raft of headlines to see us into the weekend. All right, so finally, let's get into some, uh, some substance here. What are you looking out for in the Commons Chamber this week, away from the scandal? Yes, actually, the, the main action this week will be in the Lords um, because okay. the retained EU law bill um, goes back to the Lords. And that, I think, will be quite a big battle for the government. I think the Lords are looking to make lots of amendments that failed in the Commons, you know, as the body that is meant to be expert in the legislative process. There are very few Lords that believe this can be done in the time frame provided. And I suspect because there's not much willingness uh, showing from the government side to push this through, 
but also they can't appear not to be pushing this through because this will piss off their Brexit uh, backbenchers. And so what I think will happen is that the government is hoping the Lords will put them in a difficult position so that they can then concede basically an extension. They can say, fine, fine, let's sunset all these laws, say, by 2026, rather than, you know, the end of this year. And I think that's what will end up happening, as well as Jim Harrah, uh, who I mentioned appearing in front of the Public Accounts Committee on Thursday, also on Thursday, the... the um, Cabinet Office Permanent Secretary, Alex Chisholm, will appear before the Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee, along with uh, Cabinet Office Minister Oliver Dowden. I think that will be a big focal point of in, of sort of probing on all the stuff that we discussed. You know, there's a Howie stuff on the uh, Sunak thing and incidentally on the Greensill scandal which is also beginning to re-emerge and is also somehow tied to Zahawi because it seems that Cameron was texting Zahawi you know to push the Greensill issue forward. Also this afternoon Monday uh, the culture department boss Sarah Healy appears in front of the DCMS committee, and she's likely to be asked about the Richard Sharp appointment. So all of that will be very interesting. We've spoken a lot about strikes lately. Uh, there's ambulance workers striking today. What is the current state of things more widely? Mm. I think all of the above makes it much more likely that the government will have to fold on all fronts, actually, against um, strikers in most unions. It was always a gamble whether people would side with them over nurses, let's say. They can forget it now. The overall impression, like I said, to people who don't pay very close attention to the minutiae of all these stories, as well as to people who do pay attention, actually, the overall impression is that these people can always find money for their mates and for their own priorities. So why can't they find it to pay nurses and teachers properly? And so I think the unpopularity of the government, the quagmire it finds itself in with regard to scandals, the big amounts of money seem, that seem to be flying around, all of this makes it much more likely that the government will look to fold on all public sector strikes and very, very soon. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Turning away from the UK news now, looking to Ukraine. Uh, Germany has been facing a bit of criticism over its hesitance in sending tanks. What's going on there and why is it stalling? I mean, this is one of this is one of those uh, stories where I can see it from uh, both points of view. To be honest, I think the criticism of Germany has been largely unfair. 
It has been a huge con- contributor to aid. It has given military equipment in many, many other ways. It's just very hesitant about this particular tank. And the whole conversation seems to focus on this particular Leopard tank. And the reason they're being pressed in this is b- because actually the United States has precisely the same doubts about giving its tank to Ukraine, which is the other tank that is produced in large enough numbers to make a difference, okay? So that has put all the focus on Germany. I don't feel that having someone slightly less hawkish involved in this is a negative. I think it is a positive. I think it makes everyone think a little bit more carefully about this stuff. I don't think their um, their fears are unfounded about being seen to become more involved in the uh, in the war and escalating it. I think, I mean, largely, I agree with the school of thought that says they should allow their licensees, at the very least, even if they don't want to give tanks directly, they should allow people who have bought tanks from them to give them if they want to. I think that's where I fall on balance, but that doesn't mean that I think Germany's objections are unreasonable. I think they are very reasonable, and I think the criticism has been hugely unfair. Hmm. What's the current state of action from the wider international community and more generally in terms of the invasion? I think there is a realization that things are maybe beginning to turn against Ukraine in a small way that Russia is maneuvering in a way that indicates it's in for the long haul, that it doesn't plan to withdraw in any meaningful way, that it plans to escalate and reinforce. And I think that has sobered up the international community out of a period where they seem to be speaking in a way that that suggested it was all done and dusted, that Ukraine had this sewn up. And And I think it has injected a dose of realism that this will be a longer conflict than they may have thought, that it will be a conflict that that requires their attention and their support over a more sustained period. Last week, we spoke about Joe Biden and the issue he's having over confidential documents popping up everywhere. It seems like he can't, you know, go and get a pair of socks out of his sock drawer without <laughs> finding a briefing document. At the moment. What is, what's actually going on there? What is going oh, who on? knows? I mean, it, it might, look, it might be a general indication that there's loads of top secret documents <laughs> floating around everyone's home yeah. that's been involved in a senior way in every, any, every administration in the last Using them as bookmarks, just slotted in wherever <laughs> <Yes>. he fancies. <laughs> um, which I suspect is what the case is, you know, because these people tend to work all sorts of hours. They take documents home, etc., and then probably fail to return them. I hope it triggers a sort of procedural change so that, you know, when someone ceases to be, let's say, vice president, a team goes into their home and actually looks around, removes every document that might be sensitive or secret, which is, I feel, what should have been happening in the first place, right? There should be someone in charge of this process 
that goes and removes from their computer, from their personal email, from the sock drawer, anything that could be considered secret or sensitive. That obviously doesn't happen. Yeah, well, exactly. It seems like they're doing that now when surely this, you know, this crack team could have just been a more friendly team, perhaps, of people mm. who just went in and said, OK, let's clear this out and away you go and then come yeah. back and we'll start giving you the documents again, which he clearly is so, so attached to. Are we, mm. are we like to see any more developments in the situation? And in terms of the comparison between this case and Trump's case, what is different there? I mean, I hope we don't see any more of the situation. Biden has now offered them free access to all his homes, and they've had a good poke around. So this should be the last of it, right? One hopes. And that is the basic difference between the Biden affair and the Trump affair. Biden has offered full access and full cooperation. Trump did the opposite, you know. He used every excuse in the book to say that they weren't really secret, that he'd de declassify them, they weren't in his home, that the search warrant was unlawful, that it was a political witch hunt. Biden hasn't done any of that. He's just taken his lumps. That is a really big difference. But it is irrelevant largely in terms of politics. It's, it's irrelevant in terms of how the thing looks. This is bad for the Democrats. I, I mean, hardcore Trump fans didn't care anyway, you see. But there is no such thing as Biden hardcore fans who don't care about propriety. So this hurts him, you know, and, and that might be for the best, actually, if it makes his running for a second term less likely, which I have grave doubts about. Is there anything else that you're looking out for in the coming days that listeners should keep an eye on? There's some stuff coming out about the, the post-Grenfell uh, stuff that I'm quite interested in. It's about the number of blocks of flats that have the same sort of flammable insulation. And there's a report in the House magazine that is simply astonishing in terms of how many people are still in really quite a dangerous um, situation. There's also a story breaking about British universities collaborating with Chinese institutions, which may expose us to sort of theft of innovation and science and trade secrets and that sort of stuff. I feel that that has a way to go, especially given the general anti-Chinese sentiment currently in the conservative backbenches. So I think that will go some way. Alex, thank you for getting up early to join me this morning. It's my pleasure. That was Start Your Week, out every Monday morning from The Bunker. If you subscribe on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, you'll get a shout out in this very show. On that note, here is Alex with today's roll call of gratitude. Good morning and good Monday from me to Mark, Philip Cregan, Nico Dadios, Kelly Smith, Bai Kaishui and Julia Walker. Thank you for listening to Start Your Week. Come back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? 
In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreev. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. With music by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>